You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2009. Today's episode is titled Build Learning Organizations. Most people attend college to gain the knowledge required to earn the money that will enable them to live the lifestyle that they want. Hence, after college, learning is not a high priority for most. It is generally done only when necessary. Is that wise? Should we stop learning? In his teaching on the book of the Proverbs, theologian Dr. Bruce Waltke defined knowledge as the understanding of how God's universe works, and wisdom as the skill to use knowledge to live well in God's universe. And now to bring us more on this topic is Dr. Gerald Chester with Building Learning Organizations. Welcome to the Executive Forum. We're delighted that you're here. Part of our time together is about giving you a... uh, giving you a challenging thought. And the way I like to set this up is to tell you a story. Now first let me say, in case there's any question, this is a true story. Uh, I'm not into fairy tales. Uh, I didn't even, it never considered, I never thought, or it never crossed my mind that somebody might think that I'm going to tell you a make-believe story. Well, I'm not going to tell you a make-believe story. This is a real story of a real person and real things that happened. One of the interesting things I find in researching these stories is that most of the stories I find that I present to you uh, are not presented anyplace else. Who remembers the story of the Mayo Clinic? Was anybody here for that story? Remember that story? That, you will not find that story anywhere except on my website. At least I haven't been able to find it. And I spent months researching that story. And I pieced it together very carefully through multiple sources and granted in my research there is interpretation uh, as there will be in the story today there's interpretation there's some pieces of the story that I don't know exactly what happened and I'm trying to put the story together well enough to kind of read between the lines or or see you know enough to be able to project what I think that missing piece may be so please know that that uh, to some degree there is some interpretation of what what I think happened. But as best I can tell you, this is a a factual story and it represents the realities of the situation as they happen. So let's go back in time to 1900, October 14th, 1900. In Sioux City, Iowa, there's a birth that day. A man by the name of Ed is born. Ed is born into a, a family that, um, uh, to, by today's standards, would be considered very poor. And even by the standards of that day, they were not very well off, even though his father was, was an attorney and his mother was an accomplished musician, uh, both of whom practiced their trades. But back in those days, uh, people didn't get paid as generously as they do today. So uh, they lived a very modest life. And Ed's father wanted more for his family. So he thought he might be able to, to gain a, a, better, a better footing for his family out west. So he moved out west in 1908, and they acquired about 40 acres of land under the Homestead Act, thinking they would farm it. Well, Ed's father soon realized that there's a difference between a farmer and an agriculturalist. A farmer is someone who makes money on the farm and spends it in the city. An agriculturalist is somebody who makes money in the city and spends it on the farm. Well, Ed's father found out he was an agriculturalist, not a farmer. So uh, that farming experiment didn't last very long. 
and he wound up back doing odd jobs, including occasional legal work and other things that he could find. Uh, he helped out with uh, the the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. He uh, he was got got a job doing some work there. So he just did a variety of things. So throughout Ed's formative years, he really never had a lot of stability. His family moved several times. His father was always just barely making enough money. Uh, his mother was was uh, teaching piano lessons in the parlor. In fact, their home, uh, their first home there in Wyoming, was literally the size of a, of a railroad boxcar, and it was made of tar paper. So it was very, it leaked, it was very cold in the winter, hot in the summer. It was not a very pleasant experience, but believe it or not, in, in that tar paper home, they had a parlor piano. And, and Ed's mother taught piano uh, probably five or six hours a day. So Ed grew up around music. Ed later became an accomplished musician. He, uh, he, had, a, he had two instruments he played. He played the drums and he played the piccolo. Now, I don't know how that goes together, but that's what he played, and he was accomplished. In fact, he was so accomplished that he wrote music. He wrote a rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Now, he didn't change the words, he changed the tune. And the reason he did was he had his value system was such that he felt like it was disgraceful to use a bar tune to be singing an anthem to our country. And he viewed, viewed the music that, was, that the Star Spangled Banner was played to was a bar tune. So, uh, so he decided to write his own rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. But even more profoundly than that, he was a man that loved the scripture. And so he wrote music to the Psalms, specifically Psalm 25. He put that Psalm to music. So this man was a very accomplished musician. He was uh, very knowledgeable. In fact, as a young boy, uh, he gained the nickname Professor. And the reason they nicknamed him, nicknamed him that was because he was a very diligent student and he was very careful about being correct and accurate about what he, what he said. So his friends started calling him Professor and that nickname stayed with him most of his life. In 1921, he, uh, he graduated from the University of Wyoming with an engineering degree and uh, had an opportunity to go to the University of Colorado to study. And so he went there and continued his studies there. In 1923, he met a lovely young lady named Agnes Bell, and they were married. Soon thereafter, they adopted Dorothy, and uh, they, they started their family. He graduated from the University of Colorado with a master's degree in mathematics and physics, and um, one of his professors noted his skill was great. He was a hardworking man. He, he was frugal. He learned a lot of great lessons growing up in, in, the, in the home he grew up in, not only biblical truth, but just biblical principles of being frugal, hard, working hard, using his time well, making good choices. So all those things served him well in graduate school. And so this professor saw all these traits in him and said, you know, you really need to get your Ph.D. So he went to Yale in 1924, and in 1928 he got his Ph.D. in physics, mathematical physics. So uh, he was a very learned and educated man. Along the way, he had opportunity to work in the summer. Now, his program was different from my program. When I was in graduate school, I got no breaks. I worked literally year-round for four years. But he got summers off. So he, during the summer, what he did is he went to Chicago, and he worked at the Western Electric plant in Chicago. Now, Western Electric was a, an affiliate of Bell Telephone. Now, those of you that know a little bit about history know Bell Telephone was really a rising company. Uh, back in those times. In fact, if you had had some money to invest, Bell Telephone Company would have been a good investment. 
Well, Bell Telephone Company was, was putting telephones literally all across the country. So they were building this massive network. So you needed not only what we know as telephone you know, instruments, the phones themselves, you had to have all the network, all the switches, and all the wiring, the cabling, everything that goes with it. So there's this massive project going on. And Bell has, a, has hired Western Electric to build a lot of the equipment. Well, Western Electric was a facility in Chicago that had 46,000 workers. Now, approximately 44,000 were women. And Ed was warned. He said, you know, don't be in the stairwell when they blow the whistle at the end of the day. Okay? Because back then, w women went to work with high heels, and they raced down that stair. And anybody in their way would get trampled. So he learned very quickly to stay out of the way of the women when, when quitting time came. But he learned a lot of other lessons there. Uh, he, he, he came in contact with a gentleman by the name of, of Mayo. Now, this is not the Mayo Clinic Mayo. This is another Mayo. This, this guy's from Australia. Now, Mayo had a, a theory about management that was very interesting to Ed. Mayo's theory was that you have to consider the social needs of the worker if you want to enable the worker to do the very best that that worker can do. And so he had a number of points that related to that, but that always stuck with Ed, because what he saw in the management of that day was mostly total disregard for the social needs of workers. Workers were treated as fungible items, and fungible means interchangeable. It means if you had a need, you just got a worker to fill that need. It didn't matter who the worker was. But Ed could see from Mayo's theories that that wasn't true, that people had specific assignments. And so Ed was beginning to see at this time the beginnings of what I teach as C4, recognizing the, the, the distinction and the individual um, personality and gifts and talents that God gives each one of us and therefore the unique assignments that each one of us has. So he began to see that. There was another man that influenced Ed at uh, Western Electric, a guy named Dr. Walter Schuhart. Now, Dr. Walter Schuhart was also a Ph.D. physicist. He had gotten his Ph.D. in 1917 from the University of California in Berkeley. And he was about nine years older than Walter, um, excuse me, than Ed. So Walter became kind of a mentor. And what Walter did was Walter was, was on assignment from Bell Labs in New York. He was, he was a member of the technical staff of Bell Labs, but Bell Labs had sent Walter to Chicago, and they had sent him there specifically because they were having quality control issues with the plant. If you're putting telephone equipment all over the United States, it's all got to work together. Okay? So you've got to have very consistent quality control, or you're going to wind up with stuff that's not going to talk to each other, and that's not going to work well in the telephone system. So Walter was there to try to fix the quality control problem. So as he began to study quality control, he brought the scientific methodology you know, to the task, and he began to study what he called the theory of variation. The theory of variation says that in any process, you, know, you have variation. Things don't happen exactly the same every time. For example, if you're making, uh, making a, a telephone instrument itself, and you're assembling all these pieces. Well, you know, you, they don't quite fit together exactly the same every time. So you've got to deal with, you know, tolerances as well as the variation of the process in assembling this thing to get consistently quality products at the end. So he began really studying what we now know as statistical quality control, SQC. And he is the father of SQC. He developed the theory. He wrote the book. He trained others to do it. 
and one of his, his mentor, one of the people that he mentored was Ed. So Ed got exposed to this whole process of statistical quality control through Dr. Shuhart in the 1920s. When Ed graduated in 1928, he, uh, he got a job with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in their fixed nitrogen laboratory. Now you say, what in the world is that? Well, that's the farming industry. The USDA is interested in farmers and how do we produce better and better uh, you know, crops you know, more efficiently. So they're into fertilizers and crop rotation and all those kinds of things. So Ed took his mathematical physics degree to that, that group and he worked there for 12 years applying what he knew about statistics and mathematics to the whole process of farming and, and how, to, how to come up with the best practices of farming. Along the way, he continued his relationship with Dr. Shuhart. They would frequently have dinner together and fellowship together and talked a lot. And finally, over time, the relationship went from being a, a teacher-mentor to a, two colleagues. They began to collaborate together. In 1940, the United States uh, was going to do a census. Well, you know what was going on in 1940. There was rumblings of war. And so the, the census department said, you know, it's very cumbersome for us to go and count every human being in the United States. That's going to take a lot of time. And they had heard about Dr. Ed, and Dr. Ed was known for his statistical prowess, and of course, that all came from Dr. Shuhart, but Ed said, you know, what you could do to save some money is you could do sampling. And he talked to them about how they could do sampling of people groups and come up with, a, with an accurate accurate census that they could have confidence in and make decisions on. So the census department, after much debate, agreed to do that, and they hired Ed away from the agriculture department, and he went to work for the Census Bureau, and he started applying his statistical techniques there. Well, the war started in 1941, and several of the uh, people that knew Ed said, Ed, you need to make a contribution to the war effort beyond just being a statistician in the census department. So he started teaching Dr. Schuhart's SQC techniques and methodologies to manufacturing companies all over the United States. And in, case, in case some of you don't realize, the United States was kind of flat on its feet when World War II started, and four years later we are this monstrosity producing incredible amounts of airplane, munitions, bombs, you know, rifles, uniforms, food, all this stuff for war effort. We, we, we ramped up very quickly. One of the ways we ramped up so quickly was SQC. Because SQC was a way, a technique for getting consistently high quality products. Well, as Ed saw all this, experienced all this, he got real excited about, you know, this, this is, hey, this could be my career, is teaching and training and consulting around SQC. So in 1947, after the war, he hung up, hung up his shingle. He became a management consultant even though he had no management training but he had training in SQC. And so now what we want to talk about is what happened as a result of him hanging up a shingle. He starts going around calling on the people that he knew that he had trained during the war to build war equipment. Now these people have now churned and they're building things for the new economy. Appliances, lawnmowers, automobiles, ice cream makers, all kinds of different things. And the American public is just, just eating it up. We've got boom years after World War II, and the manufacturing companies now, they've left their altruistic, you know, support the cause and said, hey, we can make a bunch of money. And the way we're going to make a bunch of money is make as much product as we can and sell it as fast as we can. 
And so when Ed comes knocking on the door and says, you know that stuff I taught you during the war? Hey, I'm now, I'm now a management consultant. I can help you with your consumer products. With whatever it is you're making, I can help you do it better. And they said, Ed, that's, that's great. We appreciate it. But guess what? Uh, we don't really need that. It takes too long. It's too cumbersome. And we're just going to make it as fast as we can because we're going to make a bunch of money. So greed was driving corporate America after the war. And Ed very quickly discovered nobody wanted what he had to sell. Now that's a tough place to be. So here's your discussion question. Based on your experience in World War II, you started a management consulting practice focused on SQC, Statistical Quality Control. Soon you realize that companies don't want SQC. It's viewed as cumbersome and unnecessary. Companies simply want to sell as much product as possible to make as much money as possible. So your question is, what are you going to do? You own this new consulting practice, and you're trying to go sell yourself and your expertise in SQC, and nobody wants it, so what are you going to do? So let's talk about what he actually did. First of all, you need to know that Ed got very discouraged. In fact, at one point he said, there's nothing here, not even smoke, referring to his business. And while he's trying to get this fledgling consulting practice started, he's still working uh, on assignment with the, with the uh, State Department and the, con and the uh, Consensus Bureau. And so they, they sent him around to study how, how other countries were doing a census. And so he, did, he was doing some contract work while he's trying to get his business going, which is a lot of times what you have to do when you're starting a business. You, you do some different things to kind of support yourself as you're trying to get things going. So he was doing that. So they sent him over to, to Italy, and he, he, he talked to them and studied how they did their census. And then he wound up going to India, and then he wound up going to Japan. And when he got to Japan, um, you know, he found that there was a lot of interest particularly on the part of the Supreme Allied Command. Uh, General MacArthur was there basically as the uh, Supreme uh, Commander of Japan. He was kind of like the Pope of Japan. And uh, he was ruling everything with a, an iron fist. And they decided they wanted to do a census in 1951. And they knew of, of Ed's skill with census and with statistics and sampling and all this. And said, said well, could, would you help us with the sampling here? And he said, great. So he began to work with Japanese statisticians developing the processes and procedures and everything they needed to do this census in 1951. Unbeknownst to him, an organization rose up in Japan called the Japanese Union of Scientists and Engineers, uh, JUS. Now, JUS uh, was basically scientists and engineers who had been part of the Japanese war effort and were now trying to help rebuild the country. And so they had come together for that purpose. And so they start talking about how can we get our industry restarted. Now Japan was a country that basically had very little farming and they were very strong industrially and they depended upon their exports to be able to buy food for their people. Well, with their basically their cities in ruin because they were bombed during World War II, they really didn't have a, much of an industrial uh, capability. So JUS was, was trying to get this thing geared up and going, trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. So in the course of, of talking with some of the Americans that were there, they ran across some people from Bell Labs. And these people from Bell Labs uh, realized what these guys were looking for was the kind of stuff that happened back in the 20s at Western Electric. And they said, well, what you guys need 
is Statistical Quality Control, SQC. And we got the books. You know, one of our guys wrote the book. So they started shipping Dr. Schuhart's books over to Japan, and they started reading and studying about SQC through these materials. And along the way, one of the leaders of JU's discovered that Ed had been, a, had been mentored by Dr. Schuhart. So they couldn't get Dr. Schuhart to come over to Japan, so they contacted Ed. By then, Ed had gone back to the United States. He'd been, he was over there in probably 47 or 48, so this is 1950. They contacted him and said, hey, would you come back? And, but this time, don't come back so much for the census, but come back and teach us SQC. Well, this now, Ed's business has been going for three years, and he's had almost no business activity. He has a client call him. Now he says, hey, would you come teach us SQC? So he is just absolutely bouncing off the wall. He said, you bet, and I'll do it for free. How many would do that? Huh? Not many of us would do that. So, so he gets on an airplane, and he goes zipping over there. Now, you need to understand something about Ed. He's a smart guy. You know, he's figured out the problem with his company. And there's no question that he prayed about it. He was a man of God. He was a man that looked for guidance from the Lord. And he was asking the Lord, what's going on? How do I understand this? There's no question that was happening. But he was also saying, what is the real root issue? You see, that's one of the things we all have to learn to think at root issue levels. If you're trained as a scientist, you're trained to think that way. So he's asking, what is the root issue? And he'd realized the root issue was senior management. See, the problem was senior management was eaten up with greed. And he was not willing to play into that. He knew that, that, would, be not, that would not be fruitful. So what he was determined to do was to offer senior management a different philosophy of management. And so he began to develop this philosophy of management. And so when he got to Japan, he was primed. You know, he, he agreed to do this for free, not only because he wanted to teach him SQC, but he knew SQC would never take hold in Japan if he didn't teach him what he considered to be his new theory of management. That was critical. And so he got over there and he started teaching seminars. Instantly, he had five and 600 people at seminars. They were turning people away. So he was an instant success teaching SQC over there. But then some of the JU people came to him and said, well, we want you to expand this thing. He says, I'm not expanding it. And they said, why? He said, because this is going to be a flash in the pan if we don't retrain your senior management. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, you will not endure. And then he told them the story of what happened in the United States, how the United States used SQC during the war. Once the war is over, senior management, you know, they lose their altruistic mentality, and they decide we're going to make a bunch of money now, so we'll throw off SQC, and now we're just going to focus on making as much as we can, as fast as we can, and don't worry about the quality. He says, if, if you want to truly have an efficient, world-class company, you have got to have management that is totally supportive of that, and then, in that context, SQC can work. And so, J.U. said, okay, what do you want us to do? I said, he said, bring me your top senior leaders of industry, and I want to talk to them all. And so over the summer of 1950, he had a series of meetings with the presidents, the CEOs of the, of the most uh, advanced industrial companies in Japan. Basically, by the time the summer is gone, he had talked to all of them. And he had presented his theory of management. 
Now, now a lot of them didn't like it, and they reacted very negatively to it. But as they listened to him, and they heard about you know, how this was absolutely essential if you were going to do SQC, and they looked at the devastation in the country. This country was, was wiped out during World War II. It was bombed to smithereens. They had nothing. There were, there were, a lot of people didn't have a home. They, did, they couldn't hardly get food. They were starving to death. Ed, on, frequently on his trips over there, he would go and he would buy food at the PX and he would, he would host parties in his hotel room and invite his Japanese friends to come so he could feed them because that was one of the few times they could get good food. The Americans made sure the Americans had good food. The Japanese were treated as second-class people. And so he was, he was very, very hurt and wounded to see that, so he did all he could to help. There was another occasion where he, he saw a Japanese... Uh, um, uh, it, it was a, a, an old folks home and the, the, the guy running the old folks home was mistreating, mistreating the senior citizens and he was able to use his influence to get that Japanese uh, manager fired he was on a crusade to help the people of Japan he learned the Japanese language, he studied their culture he mixed with them, he spent time with them he showed compassion to them, he gave them things he gave them not only his time but he spent money to buy food for them to help him any way he could. So he endured himself to the Japanese people. That's one of the reasons that these senior leaders listened to him. Even though that everything within them is saying, you know, we don't want this, they said, this man is invested in us. We have to listen. So they did listen. And he told them this. He said, if you will take my principles and you faithfully apply them, within five years, you will be recognized as a quality producer of goods and services. Well, it turns out he was wrong. It happened in four years. But they did it. And Dr. W. Edwards Deming turned the Japanese culture around because of biblical truth and biblical principles that he applied. Now, he had four key things that he taught. And I'm gonna, I've got a takeaway card for you at the end, but I just want to just share with you briefly these four key things. As he studied all, he was studying business and manufacturing and pr all the processes and how you do things, he, he reduced things down to four key ingredients. The first thing is the importance of understanding a system. He said everything fundamentally is a system. You and I are all part of systems. A company is a system. You start out with raw materials and you wind up with finished goods and everything between is a series of processes that are part of this big system that we call a company. And you have to treat a company as a system. And the way you manage it well is you optimize the system. So that was a very key point that he taught. The second key point that he taught had to do with SQC and the whole theory of variation. And this is where science has helped business. Scientists have come, Dr. Schuhart being the, the pioneer here, Dr. Deming didn't pioneer this, this was Dr. Schuhart. Deming learned this from Schuhart. Schuhart is the one that really applied statistical analysis to manufacturing and to business processes. And so as he, as he applied this truth and he develops the concepts of variation, he realized there's basically two types of variations. There's common variation and special variations. Common variations are things that just happen routinely in any process. Special variation are things that don't happen routinely. They're, they're anomalies. They're, they're events that are unpredictable events, like, for example, a machine breaks down, or the power goes off, or you know, some, some 
product that you bought all of a sudden, it isn't the product you thought. It was something totally different. So these are special variations. And so when you have special variations, that's extremely dis disruptive. So one of the key roles of management is to eliminate special variation. And the second key role is to minimize the common variation. So that was the second point, is the theory of variation. The third element was epistemology. Who knows what epistemology is? You should all know what epistemology is. Come on. It's a theory of knowledge. How do you know what you know? That's epistemology. And Dr. Deming knew that it was knowledge was very important. And you know why knowledge is important? Because 2 Peter chapter 1 tells you it's important. It tells you this. It says, you have everything you need for life and godliness through... Does anybody know what the rest of it is? Through the knowledge of God. You see, everything you need to do what you're called to do, to live your life well, comes through the knowledge of God. Dr. Deming understood that. And so that's why epistemology was so important for him. He knew you had to have a good theory of knowledge or you would never be able to be excellent and world class. And so to him, knowledge was all about understanding theory. You don't understand anything unless you have a theory. A theory is like a model. My Beyond Babel model is a theory of how to do business biblically. And when you learn a theory, and now you begin to test the theory, you're, you're seeing how well the theory predicts reality. And so that's how you gain knowledge. His point was, if you don't test the data that you have, that you get from living life against a theory, how do you learn? You learn by theory. And so it was very important for him that we have a theory of management, a theory of manufacturing, a theory of process control, a theory of people. Everything was a theory for him, so he's always testing his theories. So that's the second one. The, the fourth, excuse me, the third one. The fourth one is people, what he calls psychology. Now, he wasn't thinking of psychology like we are today. He was thinking about how God made people to function how he made them. And one of the, 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 the great things he, he concluded early on in his career is that people are not fungible. Everyone is unique, and everyone has a specific place where they fit. And so finding that place is very critical. That was manage, one of management's chief responsibilities is discerning what, where each person fit in the organization if they fit. And if they didn't fit, help them go find where they do fit. Now, can you imagine an organization with management thinking like that? They're so concerned about getting people in the right places. That is, that's the number one agenda. Money is secondary. And when you start thinking at that level, you're beginning to think like Dr. Deming thought. Well, Dr. Deming's uh, success was largely hidden until about 1980. In 1980, some of you were around in that year, you may remember NBC did a special the, special, the title of the special was, if, the, if Japan can, why can't we? Does anybody remember that? Yeah. It was an NBC white paper, and they presented SQC, Dr. Deming, and his profound theory of not, a profound system of knowledge. In fact, what I've just given you, those four points, were called his profound system of knowledge. And so, as soon as that program went on, the very next day, his phone started ringing off the wall. Now, Dr. Deming, in 1980 was 80 years old. Do you know that? 
he had largely gone unrecognized and unknown up until 80. His seminars, his four-day seminars, some of you fuss at me for doing an all-day seminar. He did four-day seminars, okay? I don't want to hear any more of it. Four-day seminars were largely, uh, you know, 10 or 15 people, and that's pretty much it. That was prior to 1980. After 1980, there were thousands of people in each seminar. Four days. I want to repeat that, guys. Four days. Okay. So he did these seminars all over the country. He continued. He was an adjunct professor at, at uh, New York University in the School of Business, although he had a Ph.D. in physics. He didn't have a degree in business. I'm not sure exactly how he pulled that off, but he did. And he taught there all his life. So he continued teaching academically. He had his training courses, and he continued doing consulting, and he was able to cherry-pick his clients. He was able to be so picky that the only way you could get Dr. Deming to come to your company was your CEO had to call and issue the invitation personally, and the CEO had to be in the meeting. It was not good enough for you to call Dr. Deming and say, would you come to Ford Motor Company? I want you to meet with my vice presidents. He would say, no, thank you. If you want me to come and meet with you and your vice presidents, I will come and meet with you and your vice presidents. You see, he, he figured out early on from that experience in 1947 when he hung out at Shingle and had nobody interested that the key was I've got to get the senior leaders to buy into this. If they don't buy into my theory of management and SQC, it will never happen. And so he was very picky about who he served. So throughout the rest of his life, from age 80 to 93 when he died, he was tireless in how he worked. In fact, his daughters complained because they had to make appointments to see him. And his comment to them was this. This is my time. I have been put here to do this. I must do it. He had a profound sense of the destiny and purpose of God in his heart. That God had put a deposit in him that he had to get out, and he knew his time was short, and he was going to make use of every day. In fact, he, worked, he literally was working up to a few days before his death. It's interesting that his other colleague, Dr. Drucker, Dr. Peter Drucker, did you know he died at 90, age 96? Did you know that Dr. Drucker never retired? And Dr. Deming never retired. Isn't that interesting? Two of the great men that have influenced management theory in the last century never retired. And yet what we have today in our culture is this, this consumption uh, mentality that's focused on when can I retire so I can go do what I want to do when I want to do it how I want to do it. That's how we think. See, we don't think like great men think. And Dr. Deming wasn't a great man when he first started. He became a great man because he walked with God doing what he was called to do, and he was committed to doing it no matter what the price. See, that's what makes people great, is doing the will of God in their life. I, w I would love to see a prize someday, not for the richest, for the most handsome, or the most ingenious, but for the person that most lined up with the will of God in their life. That would be a real prize. That would be worth giving. And I would love to know that man's story. Because that's a man you want to emulate. He probably wouldn't take the prize. Probably wouldn't. And there are stories about men like that that have been, have been given opportunity. In fact, uh, some of you may have heard me tell the story of, uh, of uh, the Quaker Oats man, uh, Crowell. Remember Crowell? 
Well, Crowell single-handedly saved Moody Bible Institute. You may not know this. Dwight L. Moody was a very fiery preacher, but he was a lousy manager. And his Bible Institute was about to go bankrupt. And Crowell walks in, literally, he, he, he retires from Quaker Oats and walks in and saves Moody Bible Institute via his management skills. And then he operated, he basically managed that institution for the remainder of his life. Crowell actually died on a train going home from work with his Bible open. When he died, he just his head fell in his Bible. That's how he died. I said, Lord, that's how I want to die. I want, to, I want the Bible open. I want my head to fall into the Bible. What a great way to die. As long as Crowell was alive, he would not let any building on the campus of Moody, Moody Bible Institute be named after him. Now, see, that's what great men do. Great men are not about themselves. They're about doing what God has created them to do. Dr. Deming did that. And that's the lesson I want you to get. Don't think about retirement. Think about doing the will of God. And don't give up. When you've been given something to do, there is a way to do it. You just got to keep probing to find the root issue and then bring in a divine solution to that root issue. And that's how you press in and you do the things you're called to do. So may the Lord give us grace to live like Dr. Deming lived. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this lesson of W. Edwards Deming, the model that he was, a man of faith, a man of conviction, a man of faithfulness, a man of tenacity, a man of keen insight, a man of truth, a man who was never driven by greed, he was never driven by money, he lived 50 years in his own house, Father. We're thankful to know that. His only agenda was to do what you put him to do. So may that be our portion. May we get that lesson today. May it go deep into us and transform us so that we can walk out the reality of your call in our lives. Give us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.